0: Welcome to the Future Christian
1: Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond, Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by Jesse Krushenck. Jesse is an ordained Foursquare minister and nationally recognized expert in the fields of discipleship, neuroeducation, and experiential education. She has spent over a decade applying neuroeducation research to discipleship, ministry training, experiential education, and organization development. She's a respected global leader in mythological thought, and serves the body of Christ as a neuroecclesiologist, which we'll ask her more about here soon. Jessie is a church and denominational consultant and serves as the director of certification with the Future Church Company. She is the co-founder of 5Q, which focuses on training teams around Ephesians 4. She's the founder of Huology, which seeks to equip all people to be disciple-makers. Jessie holds a master's from Harvard in mind, brain, and education. She is a published academic author and serves on multiple boards internationally. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at yourbrainbyjess. And a fun fact, Jesse lives in Colorado and is sort of a neighbor to me as we both reside in the Denver metro area. So let's welcome Jesse to the show.
2: Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Lauren.
1: Thanks for being here. What else would you like our listeners to know about you?
2: Oh man, I have a lot of quirky hobbies. So I played roller derby, I trained MMA. Um, I was a professional rock climber, at, you know, 13, 14, and 15. I start things, and then the Lord makes me hand them off and move on to start new things, which is always frustrating because the grass is always greener behind me. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could stay, but he keeps moving me. So I don't know. There's I'm I'm just a quirky person. So there's a lot of interesting facts out there about me.
1: Yeah, you need to share your roller derby nickname I heard from you last time.
2: Yeah, so my name is JCDC, which stands for Jess Crookshank Dream Crusher.
0: Hmm. And that
2: was given to me by the staff at the uh, wilderness ministry that I helped run. So the ministry staff that I led gave me the name uh, Dream Crusher. Dream Crusher. (laughs) And so then when I went into roller derby, I already had a name.
1: Tell me more about that, if you don't mind. Dream Crusher, how did that... (laughs) How did that work with the ministry setting?
2: So I I'm a Gen Xer and I employed millennials and they had lots of aspirations and thoughts and things that they wanted to do. And I would I would be like, okay, so if you want to do that, you're gonna to have to do A, B, C. How are you gonna solve problem D? And I would unpack the reality of executing such an idea. And um they decided I was a dream crusher.
0: So,
1: yeah, kind of a dream crusher, but kind of like a dream planner. But, yes, I can sometimes, you know, reality and like how to get there gets in the way of our fun ideas.
2: Yeah. And I, I wanted them to actually realize their goals, which means you have to understand what it takes to accomplish something. So uh, I heard it in a like a kid's movie. I can't remember which one, but a dream crusher saves you from your unrealistic goals.
1: Hmm. That's good. That's good. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, what is, uh, talk, talk a little bit about your spiritual journey and what that looked like for you.
2: Sure. You know, I, um, I was raised in a Christian home, but my mother and my father had come to Christ as adults. And my mother had been a witch before she, in, in Wicca, before she became a Christian. And so I gave my life to the Lord at the age of three. So did my brother and my sister. I'm the middle child. And then um, I felt called to ministry at the age of five. So you're in kindergarten and people are, you know, they ask you, well, what do you wanna be when you grow up? You know, and people are like, I'm a doctor, I wanna be a firefighter or whatever it is that they say. And I was like, I wanna be a missionary.
1: Wow, yeah. Because
2: in the church I had been to, we had these missionaries come from Indonesia and they would climb rubber trees and tap rubber trees. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, you can, you can go to other countries And do amazing adventures for God. Like, I was all in on that. So, I wanted to be a missionary when I grew up. Unfortunately, um, I was in a church that didn't believe that God called women, didn't, that God called women. Yeah. And so, that was crushed Mm -hmm. by, not by my parents, my parents were very supportive, but that was crushed by my Sunday school teachers and the youth group leaders story ends badly with my family getting kicked out, um, in part because of my call to ministry. Um, and I studied the Bible and I was really good. So I would argue with yeah. my Sunday school teachers with biblical evidence that that didn't go well. <laughs> and I also liked fishing more than shopping. So I couldn't participate in any of the youth group activities.
1: Oh, for girls. Yeah.
2: Mm, yeah. So So I went to college to be a high school teacher and at the end of my college, uh, at the end of that, the Lord said, Hey, I really was serious about that call on your life. And I didn't end up going into education, um, formally. I started, uh, built a ministry that is in Wyoming. Um, it's a Christian wilderness school. So, so taking that rock climbing and outdoor stuff and, Discipling other people, so putting those together for a deep immersion experience. So forty days in the wilderness, backpacking, technical rock climbing, technical snow mountaineering for deep discipleship. Wow. So that's what I built with other people and ran um for thirty years. Or not thirty years. I was until I was thirty. And uh so
1: I think we're the same age, or you're the same age and or else you're like you look way better than me for your age. (laughs)
2: I don't have children, so I and I dye my hair. <laughs> Those two things—they <laughs> seem to—they they cause you to age less.
1: Yeah. <laughs> children so, for sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. So just I've been serving in full time ministry since I was 22. At this point, in lots of different types of assignments, so. Now I'm coaching denominations in churches through Future Church Company with Will Mancini, Dave Rhodes, and Kelly Canosher And then I also started my own ministry um, called Huology that is laser focused on equipping disciple makers and the emotional relational journey of being a disciple maker. So it would partner with a curriculum, a discipleship curriculum, but it, it helps to teach people how to be a mentor.
1: Hmm. Cool. I'm curious. So. Uh, we kind of talked about this before we started recording that we're kind of be a little bit off the cuff off script here. You mentioned like being a dream crusher. And then I'm thinking back to like your early formative years in church where like the church was kind of crushing your dream, your call. And I'm curious, like how do you differentiate? What advice do you have for folks to differentiate between like someone's like, this is literally a dream that needs to be quote unquote crushed. Or I'm just in a context that is, Crushing my dreams unnecessarily
2: well so you know the answer to to both of those for me has been what does god say so for me the anchor was what did god say and i didn't need other people to tell me the thing mm-hmm. um and in fact for them getting in the way what i learned eventually um was that they were opposing god by opposing what god had told me to do hmm. um So, so then, because what I see is both, um, both crushing other people's dreams inappropriately, but also then fighting, um, you can do those in your own strength. Like those can be, be conversations that God isn't part of. So we can be trying to make our own thing happen as well. And we're missing God. And so there's no grace and God's not codependent. And so he's not going to partner with us in unhealthy ways. He's not going to just give in to our temper tantrums. Yeah. So the way that we find the path of grace is by hearing what God is saying, which is the thing, and then being obedient and walking in that space of grace, which is a thing. But that's what I try to help people with. Because if you're in where God is, then he's going to defend you and he's going to make it happen. And Hmm. you don't have to be defensive and fight.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's good. That's good. I'm thinking of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Heather Thompson Day.
2: Mm -hmm. She lives here in town. I haven't, I don't know her, but she lives here in town. Well, I had
1: her on the pod uh, recently and read her book and I feel like there's some crossover Mm -hmm. correlation to what her book's about, that kind of thing too, as much as like, patience is not my strong suit i feel like patience is a big thing that you're saying there
2: yeah and her book is right on like every plan i've had for my own life god has resisted hmm. i i mean every single one i wanted to have a family i don't have a family i'm married but i didn't want to get married <laughs> and i didn't want to marry that guy hmm. um i wanted to be a, a high school teacher that door got closed. I wanted to study Antarctic moss in the south of New Zealand. Wow. That door got closed. Like every plan, progressively, every plan I've had for my life, God's like, eh, no. Hmm. And his plan has always been better. Now, I throw my temper tantrum. Yeah. I'm totally a slow learner, but He, He, his plans have always been so much better, and they've satisfied parts of my heart I didn't even know I had. So like that whole walk of faith and trust, I'm not good at, Yeah. but God proves himself. So Heather's book is really, is really great um, on unpacking that.
1: Yeah. Uh, Heather Thompson Day, if you're listening, there's some free uh, advertising <laughs> for you. <laughs> University Press too. <laughs> so what has, what are been, what have been some spiritual practices that have kind of helped you stay in tune, stay in touch with God as you're trying to discern, you know, What's what's the right way? What's God's way for you?
2: Oh man, I got it wrong for so long. Um, I thought that you just like told God what you wanted, and then when He didn't give it to you, then that meant you were in sin and He was mad at you.
0: Hmm. Like that
2: was kind of my programming and my thought process until my mid thirties. Yeah, and it was in that whole eight years of trying to have babies, losing four. So I had four miscarriages. Um, and just that whole wrestle with God as he was actively, aggressively resisting me and all my areas of life and, um, some crazy stories on how the links he went to, to resist me, um, are pretty crazy. But what I learned is that, um, I actually have to have a conversation with him that's not transactional. And I had no idea how to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah and so he had to really work hard with me to get me to yell at him to get me to express my emotions to get me to own what i felt and say that hmm. um that took a lot of time for me the psalms were really helpful yeah so yeah so at this point in my life you know 15 years beyond those lessons um i have a really casual conversation with god going on all the time and He talks to me back and I'm like and I give him opinions like I'm not so overwhelmed that he talks to me back that I don't ask a follow up question or I don't. And I'm or I'm not like, well, that's a dumb idea. (laughs) Like I tell God he has dumb ideas all the time. And then I tell him I don't know how to do it. So he has to do it um, because he's God and I'm just a person. Um, but other things that are part of my spiritual practice these days are, um, celebration. I celebrate with friends and just have joy, lean into joy at least once a month. And then in COVID, I added in grieving once a month. Like, so I have a ritual for grieving, um, cause it just gets so heavy. I also have prayer candles, like Catholics, <laughs> cause I can't pray for the things that are heavy on my heart. Like constantly, I actually have to like do work. And do things. So I have prayer candles. I have a little shrine. It's not a shrine, but it could be a shrine. Sure, yeah. For a... <laughs> so I have prayer candles.
1: Yeah, that's great. I, I especially appreciate your your making space for grief. You know, I th- I, th- I think that's one of the hardest things in uh, in American culture, white American culture, whatever that we don't make space for grief. And I think I'm really I don't know nervous if that's the right word about if if covid ever ends or we feel like we've gotten past it the kind of the grieving that we're gonna get just kind of skip over and, and the consequences of doing that um i also kind of just appreciate your like having prayer candles because i think like there are some things that i think they're really heavy and man do you really want to be praying every day for like you know even just for stuff around here like oh boy another like person of color got shot and killed like unnecessarily like that's a lot to carry. I'm sure for, especially for people of color. Um, So that's a helpful. Yeah.
2: I mean, what I learned in my eight years of wrestling with God was that he, I didn't have to convince him of something like he was holding out on me or I didn't have to perform and pray enough to like, that's transactional, right? You have every prayer is a deposit in an account that you need to get high enough for God to listen to you. Like, the the big thing that i learned is that god is gonna be god and do god things and he's actually in charge of all of history so like my my trinitarian theology increased because my sovereignty of god paradigm increased
0: Hmm. and
2: so like god is actually good and actually in charge of like the the big thing Mm -hmm. and what am i doing what faith does it demonstrate if I think God is actually bad and I got to convince him of something good or that God is holding out and I got to convince him to be generous. Like that means I don't know who he is. And what I learned is that he won't participate with me there because if he did, it would be supporting and affirming my broken paradigm of him. Wow. So if I say, God, I don't know what to do. You're good, you're kind, and you're in charge. So you, you be that way here. You solve the problem. You be king of the universe. You be the provision of all things because this sucks and I need you to show up. Mm -hmm. And I find that that's actually the prayer of faith. And that's what he actually responds to. So my prayer candles demonstrate my intention and my heart. And I trust them to be enough because at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm, I'm mortal and he's, he's, you know, sovereign. And, I need him to fill that space.
1: No, I think it. I think it kind of gets back to like something I heard from you earlier. Like it doesn't. It's not about like saying the right words or whatever. Like we might say like, "Hey, like that's not the right kind of prayer or whatever." And if I heard you right, and I would agree, like I just don't think that's what God's keeps God up at night, so to speak. You know.
2: Yeah, and I don't think he's bad.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, this is some great conversation. We're not even we're not even into the the heart of it yet. Um, so I had this a bunch of questions listed out for Jesse to respond to, but I kind of told her like we're just gonna try some stuff off the cuff because there's some more questions I wanted to ask her as I was thinking about even leading up to this. Uh, but there is an article you wrote. Where's the? I was gonna try to find the title of it. Um, really recommend. It's called. Well, I lost it now. What's the title of that? I think it's from. You wrote it for the Send Institute. Let's see if I can find it.
2: I serve on the Mystiologist Council. Yeah, of the Send Institute. So, what should we 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 be measuring?
1: Yeah. What should we be? So, if you go to sendinstitute.org/slash, what should we be measuring in ministry? We might talk on some themes, but uh, it's worth worth checking out for sure. Um, but I wanted to ask you about. I was reading your title. And our listeners here will have heard it already. You have in your title or in your bio, excuse me, the, the title neurobiology or came and say neuro ecclesiologist. So first talk, talk to me a little bit about like what it means to be a, a neuro Yeah.
2: So it's a word I made up, <laughs> which is why you haven't heard of it before. Um, so there's, so I'm a, I'm a Harvard trained educational neuroscientist. So Um, I'm from the boondocks of Wyoming. I went undergrad, you know, I got a botany, zoology, physiology, and secondary science education degrees, and then I went into ministry full-time, and out, but I really, I wanted to learn how to teach people well, because I wanted to teach them something once and have them remember with a high degree of accuracy, because it was a wilderness ministry, so like how to self-arrest with the ice axe, or how to tie into the rope, um, but what that quickly turned into was how to have a conversation in an hour or 30 seconds that changed eternity hmm. because I didn't know how long I'd have with the students. And, and so the same brain processes that, facil- that, that have a good quality memory, you know, with tying into the rope, they're the same with um, who we are as people. So I'm not talking about how to memorize effectively. That's a different yeah. brain memory system. But the part that is our identity and who we are, um, I wanted to have that conversation once and and have it change somebody's life. So I studied the brain. My dad is a Ph.D. in adult education. We just read a bunch of stuff. I applied it to the practice. And eventually ended up going to Harvard to get my degree uh, my master's there in mind, brain, and education. So out then the Lord called me to denominational ministry into the church.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and and so I'm a missionary to the church and what I do is help the church think about how God made us to to grow, to change, to develop, and help church systems because I'm also really great at organizational dynamics. yeah, so helping church systems, with that, so that's what a ecclesiologist, There are neuro. There's a couple neurotheologians out there, but I don't have a Bible degree. I don't have a theology degree, uh-huh. so I'm just super well-read.
1: Interesting. So, what does it look like? Again, in in your body, you you write that you apply experiential discipleship, and I'm curious, kind of, what that looks like and how your neuro learnings uh, inform that.
2: So I care about whether or not people follow Jesus, not whether or not they know Bible knowledge. That doesn't mean I don't care about the Bible. I highly care about the Bible. Yeah. But if you just read it like a book or you're just about having a clear theo- theologically accurate, pure whatever yep. whatever your passion is there, yeah. understanding of God, you will miss God. And you will think Because the brain just can't be trusted. At the end of the day, this is what I know. The brain and your understanding of the world cannot be trusted.
0: Mm.
2: And so when you make the mind of man and the knowledge of God the highest good, you have just made an idol out of your own understanding. And that's why we have so much conflict in the church Mm -hmm. um, through these different streams. And, And what I learned about God is he likes to keep secrets. He... He th- he has specifically clouded things in mystery and has no desire to make it clear. Hmm. So why are we requiring clarity of one another
0: mm-hmm.
2: when God has specifically clouded that? Like, that to me is completely absurd.
0: Hmm.
2: So... And we're missing God because we're not with him where he is. And I always just want to be with him where he is. I don't want to be out here on my own making stuff up just so I have clarity because that gives me a false sense of security. Because to live in mystery and in intention with one another requires faith. Yeah. faith. Faith that it doesn't matter if one of us is right and one of us is wrong. Like, like we're just really children. In the kingdom, we're just really children. We don't understand more of the universe than a four-year-old understands of the world. And so I spent the last I spent the weekend with friends and their four-year-old, and he was really excited about the sky, and he was explaining the sky to me. He was explaining trucks to me. He was wrong on, like, most of it. <laughs> but it was gorgeous, innocent, beautiful, and I did not correct him. Yeah. And so I see that God doesn't correct us either.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: How much does God actually correct us? And then when he does, what is he correcting us about? He's correcting us about a motivation of our heart, not our theology about understanding the Bible. Maybe our theology of ourselves. Maybe our theology and our understanding of him. He'll correct us there. But when it comes to all of these things that we're just trying to answer because we've spent 2,000 years studying a book and we haven't asked God his opinion about all those things, and then he's like, I'm not going to tell you, you know we are still just four-year-olds in the mystery of the universe and god is content to let it be so and so so as a neuroecclesiologist, i will tell you that that experience of who god is experience of my life as a child of god and my relationship with you as brother and sister in the kingdom that's how i actually know what Christianity is for, the value of the cross, the provision of the cross, like what is that? How does that actually change the storyline? So I'm really more about union with God than knowledge of God, not because i I don't think about reading the Bible. Please read the Bible. Oh, yes, but just hold your own understanding, yeah, loosely.
1: you know, I love that you're you're saying that because I think to be honest, like I think you and I probably disagree on a lot of theological matters, but I really connect with your point about, like, how do you say it, like, following the way of Jesus being the thing that's important. I'm curious, like, what you think about, like, for the last, what what would we say, 500 years more, you know, since going back to uh, Luther, like, knowing and thinking the right thing has been, like, at least in my perspective, like, the defining nature of what it means to be Christian. Like, do you see this as being like a sea change of of um, of less on, as, as we might say, orthodoxy versus orthopraxy?
2: Right. So you've got orthodoxy, orthopathy, and when they—so that's that you have—that um, you love the same as God, right? Because you can have—you can take the knowledge of God—yeah, Orthop orthopathy. It is. Yeah. So orthodoxy orthopathy yield orthopraxy.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay.
2: So you can, what I see is people who have a knowledge of God, but no love of God and they become abusive.
1: Hmm. Yep. Yep.
2: So that's why you need that orthopathy. Right. And if you, if you have the love of God, but no understanding, you can't actually make a disciple. You may live as a disciple, really well, but you can't make a disciple. Hmm. And so what Jesus calls us to is that, that both and right. Nobody ever gets out of anything. It's always all the things. And Jesus says, I will help you. (laughs) So, so the orthopraxy, I do see this as a sea change because, um, the, you know, the enlightenment and all of that and the and the disenchantment of faith. And I'm a Pentecostal charismatic neuroscientist, <laughs> so I'm kind of a unique duck. Hold
1: a lot. You hold um, a lot in tension, right?
2: I do, but I love it because, again, I want to be with God where he is and he holds it all in tension. Yeah. So to me, that's my discipleship journey is to to love the way he loves, see the way he sees, you know, speak with his tone and then in his timing, like all of that coming together matters. And so I think as we have moved beyond truth as society into this place where it's so relative, it's so deconstructed and you can't trust anybody. We, to me, the only thing that gets us through that and the point of it is to come back to that solid anchor which is the thou thy the the yeah the thou I relationship of who do you say I am and that's where I am found
1: hmm you know I'm thinking about this uh, what's fresh in my mind was I just listened to episode six of the Marge Hill podcast so some more free shout outs for some folks and I'm thinking about obviously Driscoll's character was quite the character and I think of mm-hmm. someone who who seemed to least from my perspective, elevate thinking the right thing over loving. And I'm also thinking about the, how they kind of, in that episode, kind of highlight the kind of the neo-reformed, I don't know what the word to be, like mm-hmm. reformed theology has really taken root in, I mean, I'm not a reformed theologian. But in my my experience with it, it really seems to be, there's a lot about like thinking the right thing. And I'm curious, like, do you think some of that is just reactionary to this kind of drifting or changing towards a more orthopathic orthopraxis?
2: Um, no, because I think it's five hundred years old and five hundred years in the making. When when you disenchant, when you take emotion out of your relationship with God. So so in the Enlightenment, they wanted everything it was enchant it was enchanted before that, which meant it had magic, it had mystery, it had emotion, you know, you had chivalry, right? That's a very passionate Mm-hmm. Um, you know way of thinking about the world right the the middle ages were extreme they were full of so much so much romanticism and and mystery and dragons and fairies and all the things and then the enlightenment comes and we rediscover science and I'm extremely pro science I have like nine science degrees yeah but you you begin to measure things and then you think the only thing that exists is what you measure, and it only exists as you defined by you by how you measure it. Yeah. And then we started doing that to Scripture, right? And that, I mean, theology is a science. It's a measuring of Scripture, and you develop a hermeneutic, and and look, have a good hermeneutic, please, but also understand that's a me- that's a human development, a human constraint on Scripture,
0: hmm.
2: because Jesus didn't read. With the same hermeneutic that you did. Paul didn't interpret the Old Testament in the same way you did, right? His hermeneutic would not survive most Reformed Bible theologies, you know, seminaries. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Paul would be a heretic (laughs) in his process of understanding Scripture. And so, so we've got 500 years in the making of eliminating emotion, killing the heart, and therefore killing the soul, and making a person's understanding and therefore the purity of that the highest good. Hmm. And I'm a brain scientist, and I can tell you that there's a part of your brain dedicated to lying to you. Wow. So making the brain the and your understanding the highest good is really shaky, bad ground.
1: Say that again for me. Making your...
2: Making your brain and your understanding of things the highest good is extremely shaky ground
0: Hmm. Hmm.
2: because you're not created to grasp all of that. God made us in a way that we're dependent on an external truth.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking just the practical, from a practical perspective, like the importance of like mentors. And I mean, that was another theme from episode six of the podcast was a certain person was just like, Hey, I don't need it. You know, I don't need a mentor. I don't need a spiritual authority or, you know, whatever. Um, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. There's a part of your brain, our brains that are dedicated to lying to us. I mean, I can see there being negatives and positives to that, right? The, the, you
0: know.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's, it's your left temporal lobe. It's called the interpreter. And its role is to create a coherent narrative of your of your experience yeah and so i can i can do an experiment and i can make you i can make you do something like this is what con artists kind of tap into right i can make you do an action or feel an emotion or something without your permission without your knowledge and if i then ask you why you did that that part of your brain will make something up hmm to fill in the gap because it wants it needs a full storyline. And so it will fill in the blank with whatever is plausible according to your worldview in order to do that. It will also interpret circumstances through your worldview to make them fit because you're changing your mind. Metanoia repentance is extremely disruptive body, soul and spirit. And so your brain avoids it.
1: Yeah. So let and me so ask you have
2: a part of your brain dedicated to making things up and lying to you in order to maintain your worldview.
1: Let me ask this. Cause I, cause I hear you saying, talking about, I don't remember exact the wording you used when you started that answer about like being externally influenced, I guess is the general, yeah. what you said. And I'm curious, like, like church can do that a lot. Mm. Um, I'm thinking back to like, you know, getting nerdy into American church history, I'm thinking of, like, Charles Finney. Obviously, Billy Graham did the kind of altar calls things. I mean, based on my reading of Charles Finney's kind of practices, he really tried to, I don't know what the word would be, um, manage it in a way, take advantage of ways to kind of influence people to make a decision. Um, Like, knowing what we know about the brain, like, what do you think about that?
2: So I use Jedi ninja tricks. I, I do, but um, it's one step away from being a con artist and a manipulator. And so when I teach them, I make everybody pinky swear before heaven, enforceable by the angels, that uh, that they'll use their powers for good. Because you can use those for, for evil. And people do use those for evil. Yeah. But people are also... You know, I can think of churches. I can think of church experiences that use those for, for evil. Um, the But then we all do it with the way that we architect, you know, the music list on a Sunday morning. That's meant to, to create an emotional arc. Right. Um, is that manipulation? Well, I mean, someone may think so and someone may not think so. So if my practice is to always pull back the curtain, always explain what I'm doing, um, have a high, high transparency full transparency in the journey that I'm trying to help people walk on. And then transformation only happens in the conscious mind. So there's a place where you have to leave the gap for someone to say no and to someone to walk away and have no shame in that. If you're shaming a people a person's negative choice, then you then you are manipulating. If you shame them not following you, you're being manipulative
1: that's good. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, as we're recording this, it's the, it's August. And of course the, uh, I guess I can give you some infrared information or oh, I think this is relevant. Adams County, uh, just went to red status for COVID, yeah. which is not great. Uh my wife's hospital, I guess they're at yellow. Um,
0: mm.
1: and I'm thinking about obviously the vaccine, debate has become a huge conversation and I'm seeing a lot of like logical arguments shaming and to me it's just like that's not helpful um and I think we can kind of do the same thing in church where it's you know hey following Jesus I mean I was a child of the 90s where like Josh McDowell and Was at Lee Strobel and all that kind of apologetics was like, let's just make the, let's just build a logical case, and people like, oh, of course, this is the most logical thing to do, follow the way of Jesus. Um, But and then of course, a big part of the '90s was also shaming. Like, I imagine you'd agree, like those are not helpful ways to really bring metanoia, (laughs) to bring change. And um, what does that look like? To, I, I like the way you say it, like leave gap, you know, uh, yeah, I'll I'll, ask, I'll leave that for another question, answer that one first.
2: So these are all connected when we, and it's all explained in Genesis two and three. So Genesis two, you know, God says you need each other incomplete or single is not enough. And I don't mean single is like not married, but like, like solitary solo. I mean, even God exists in, in community, Right. People have written about that, love, um, so much of that, uh, theology there, but, and therefore we're created for community.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So what you have then is you have a couple people, you have community in the garden and they have not eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which means they don't know the difference between the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. They don't know the difference between right and wrong. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And that's the garden state. Right. That's that's the that's original glory. But then the serpent says and and that temptation and that lie and that con that, you know, that gets Eve to eat. And now they've experienced the difference between right and wrong and the knowledge of what's sin and what's righteousness. And the very first fruit of that is shame. Hmm. So we continue to play this out. We say, this is right, this is wrong. We hand somebody that without relationship and that literally creates shame. Shame has a profile in the brain. So if you correct somebody and if you correct a child and you yell at them and then they don't experience relational repair on the back end of that correction, it creates a specific chemical signature in the brain that is the emotional result of pain. The emotion is pain, there's a specific chem- or shame the emotional there's a specific signature for it, but if you correct them and then you bring relational repair to it, what they learn is a conviction, and so they learn it's the action that's not good, not that it's them that's not good. Because I correct you, you experience shame. You say I am not good. I have to repair that to say no, you're good. It's the action that's not good, hmm. and that is a different yeah that is a different chemical signature. So in the church, we say, you're right, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, and we have no relationship, we are creating shame. And shame can never create metanoia. Yeah. Shame is the tool of the enemy, right? So shame is never a tool of God.
1: Let's just say that one more time. Shame is never a tool of God.
2: Shame is never a tool of God because he never corrects us outside of relational repair and relationship. Hmm. So when we disciple people by handing them, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what's sin, this is what's righteousness. And we are in deep abiding relationship with them and in deep abiding relationship with God. The fruit is shame. The fruit, according to Paul, is death because we're just handing people the law. And that's what this mind, you know, this neo-reformed, you know, or whatever. I mean, there's different, there's a version of it in almost every stream where we're like, no, it's all about being right and righteousness and having the correct theology and the correct understanding of God. Apart from relationship and full dependence on God, the fruit is shame, the fruit is death. God set it up to fail that path. And we have doubled down, we've put all our eggs in that basket um, for a long time. And I think what you're seeing with the Mars Hill and this whole thing, is a, is the the culmination of that unchecked paradigm to its natural ends.
1: Hmm. Wow. This is a great conversation here. Uh, I have. I want to follow up to that question, but there's been another question rattling around in my brain that I have to ask you. I'm seeing this a lot on Twitter, definitely in the left, mm-hmm. you know, the left wing spectrum of Twitter of like. This idea, I don't know if I can properly put it into words, but kind of this idea that, like, as I would interpret it, like, you know, everyone's just, I don't know, I wouldn't quite call it, like, the blank slate type thing, but, like, we, you know, just let everybody kind of, how do I say it, like, if we just throw all the information out there, people make their own decisions, and I wonder, like, is that, is that kind of like a pipe dream, like, are we discounting the ways that like, we influence and are influenced? Does that make any sense? Yeah, it,
2: it, totally. Information will never change somebody's mind. And, and, but we've made information the, the god of transform, transformation. And I come out of education. Education says, well, no, if we just tell them the right stuff, and we tell them more of the right stuff, then they'll make the right choice. But you know, I know I shouldn't eat a cookie, and they do it anyway right information information doesn't lead anybody into the path of truth or the path of life
1: i guess looking at fast food counters like it has not stopped me from ordering my big mac or whatever seeing calorie counts on there
2: yeah it doesn't work and when you put every all of your effort there then it's then you just get louder and louder um people won't make the life-giving choice, people will never make the life-giving choice based on information. It—it's re- We are created to be relational. Relationship is the only pathway that gets us there.
1: People will and never so, make it based on information.
2: No. We're not created to.
1: Okay, I'm processing and writing it down, so that's why it's quiet here. <laughs>
2: But so these are all connected, right? Right. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will never bring life. The information of what's right and what's wrong will never bring life. Mm-hmm. And so, we have to let that go. But but in in a world without the cross, in the world without a pathway of metanoia, of repentance, that is all you have. Hmm. And so the church has continued to try to just use these worldly methods to. To do stuff, you know, and and so then we socially shame, right? Cancel culture on one end, um, fundamentalism on the other, right? So so we have these different mechanisms of of shaming, which also will never lead to life
1: yeah. or transformation. Yeah, you know, I, I heard it this weekend from a pastor, and I, I, you know, I again would would definitely would definitely identify myself as someone on the left end of the spectrum. But I would agree. Like, there's fundamentalism. As someone who grew up in right-wing fundamentalism, there's definitely fundamentalism and shaming on both sides. And I'm, I'm not for any of it. Like, I've seen, I've ex- literally experienced it. You know, growing up in right-wing fundamentalism and experience how toxic and I don't know, just painful it can be. Like, it's not going to help anything. That's my little. That's my soapbox. <laughs>
2: Right, because either version, whether it's left or right or whatever, whatever. If you say, hey, here's the right way. You don't have a relationship with someone. You don't love them. You're not, you know, you don't have that covenantal deep, you know, bond with them. The permission to speak into their life and their permission for them to speak into your life. You don't have that. And you're just like, here's what you should be doing. And then they don't line up with you. And then you shame them. Like, you're doing exactly what the serpent did in the garden, and again, I want to be—I want to be with God where He is. I want to use—I want to—I I want to do what He does. I don't—I don't want to do what the world does and what the enemy does. So.
1: So again, I'm hearing like relationship, relationship, relationship is the key through all this, and I'm wondering like, I feel like as we're we started out like in a thirty thousand foot view, and I'm we're diving in here slowly. I don't know if we're gonna have time to like get it down to the molecular level. But I'm thinking of like, like the kind of the standard church weekend experience. How does that help or hinder, you know, this, this process, uh, what, what about Sunday morning is pro this or, or helps build a relationship and what is it just like kind of antithetical should we maybe stop doing or reconsider?
2: Yeah, I mean the the part where we gather and we're with one another obviously can build relationship. Um, it can. It doesn't always, right? So false sense of community you get from a large crowd, or you know, on one end, and and then you know, I love the intro. My my husband's super introverted, and so he would prefer liturgical. I don't have to talk to anybody. I can pass the piece because I can remember that, and it's not someone's name. You know, like he'll find value in that. Um, but at the end of the day, we need to know and be known by one another. And so whatever helps facilitate that. Right. I don't want my church experience to be like the grocery store where I go, I get fed, I pick what I want. I say hi to people and I'm friendly and I leave. Right. Mm I I think, I think the community we have at church should be different than, than the grocery store. Um, because (laughs) so it depends on your, I love the different models and methods. Mm hmm. But if you're, if you have a culture and environment that says how we are with one another is what matters most hmm. and, and building those relationships and dynamics, union with God, covenant with one another, then you can do that with other methods you want, but you can also yeah. have all those methods and not that atmosphere, not that culture. And what you're actually doing is you're giving people a placebo.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
2: They think they have the thing, but they don't have the thing.
1: So so if I'm hearing you then, really whatever kind of method or context we're inviting people in, it needs to be ultimately about inviting people into deeper relationship with one another. And I, and I imagine as part of that with God. Yeah?
2: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well— Because maybe finally catching on. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're doing great. Like this is, these are all the things, right? All of the, the pains and the problems. And we always want to solve them practically, but we have to solve them. If we're really going to make a difference, we have to solve them at the root. And that is what has God actually called us to do? And if he's not called us to have enough information to pass the test, there's not a test to get into heaven. Yeah. But what there is, is did I know you, which means did I allow myself to be known by God? Was I intimate with God? And then how did you treat other people? Those are the questions that are asked, not not the knowledge of God questions as far as like pure theology.
1: You know, this is kind of me processing here for a little bit, but I'm just thinking like as a pastor, I'll say this. Like I hate sitting in the pews. I hate it. And I'm in a context right now where I'm sitting in the pews and I hate it. But I'm wondering, like, maybe that's, like, part of it. Like, it's hard to get, kind of build a relationship in the pews on a Sunday morning. And maybe that's one of the, I don't know, what do you think? Is that one of the biggest maybe detriments of whatever we want to call, like, the the modern worship experience is that it can often be seen as the... Like that's the thing you need to do to be Christian, like show up, be in the pews and you're good.
2: Yeah. I mean, that also comes out to us from the Reformation, right? So that, that teaching that disciples are made when the world is, when the word, the Bible is appropriately mediated. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's good.
2: And when you've made that, there's, that is a hundred percent wrong biologically, neurobiologically, biblically, like that statement is a hundred percent wrong. But we've designed everything around that. Now I love like what Charles Wesley did, where he had pews that would flip. So he would teach a concept, then they would flip into little small groups in the church. Right? So now we're having a small group discussion. Okay, flip it back, we're gonna bring it back, you know, and you could do a rhythm of that and go through three points and get a depth of both transformation in understanding as well as relationship building. in, in a church environment, um, in a Sunday gathering, it's just on how you, how you roll that out. And so people have been innovative and tapped into how we actually transform. Um, it's just, that doesn't look good. And, uh, we lost that in the last 30 years, 50 years, we went, we went a different direction.
1: It's hard to just the logistics of such would be hard in like a group of a thousand people to break them into groups in a, I would think in a meaningful or not meaningful in a time conscious, you know, in a time context, you know, within the bounds of what you're working with the time. But I I love that if I'm hearing you right, that a general idea of like I've I I was trying to do that. And I I think that would be a great idea of like, you know, having a message, but then like inviting conversation afterwards, whether it's part of the formal gathering, whatever, to say, like, hey, what do you all think? Let's talk about it.
2: Yeah, and but I've done it with thou with groups of thousands. Um, you just have people, okay, turn to each other, you've got five minutes, find groups of twos and threes, discuss this question or share this thing. Mm-hmm. And then you just put like a counter, like the worship team has the count, you know, the, t- the countdown, and then you bring it back. So it doesn't matter if it's twenty, it doesn't matter if it's two thousand. Is as a I'm confident as a facilitator in my ability to bring them back, um and that's all that matters but it it totally scales it hmm. totally is doable. well that's
1: good to know that's good to know um so i'm i'm guessing like obviously you're you're facilitating opportunities to build a relationship there what else neurologically maybe happens during those kind of conversations that is important
2: um gosh i mean so so much <laughs> that would take a whole other conversation Fair enough. Um, to unpack like Um, But just understanding the pathways of how we actually change don't include having the right information. Hmm. The right information is like third in the whole process um, because it's really about it's about relationship, you know. And so I am just hoping as we move forward in this new era of the church that we can actually find a way to get to real disciple making, real passion and union with God. You know, information doesn't go away cuz again, I, I love the Bible. Theology is is awesome, but it needs to take its prop, its rightful place, which is usually like third in the priority list. So orthopathy, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. And I just love to see churches find their own voice and in their in their theological stream and in their their model whatever that is, just find their way to that so that we can be a people of God that he recognizes and the world recognizes as a people of God. Hmm. That's what I hope for.
1: I just want to point out for our Methodist listeners, uh, Jesse is going to be working with Methodists perhaps in the future. So you heard a Charles Wesley shout out. So just remember that she's pro Charles.
2: Well, and I come from Foursquare, which is a couple generations down, um, Wesley, and I've worked with the Wesleyan um, coalition a little bit, so I I love Wesley.
1: Us Mainlanders <laughs> can be very loyal to our founders and influencers. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. I promise this will be my last question here before we take a break. I'm thinking about like sacraments. Um, obviously, Protestants generally refer to them as ordinances or whatever. Um, as I, I think I'm forgetting what the seven are from the Catholic church is preaching considered sacrament in the Catholic church.
2: Gosh, we don't know. I don't know. It is in the Presbyterian church. It's the only
0: sacrament,
1: right? That's what I'm thinking. Like, <laughs> I don't know if, if, um, obviously many evangelicals wouldn't use these words, but based on kind of the, the context of most modern worship services, singing music slash singing music and then preaching are like the two sacraments, so to speak. Um, do we need to develop, to utilize, I'm not sure even the question asked, ask, other kind of means of grace? And I know I'm getting really loaded here theologically in my question to help people experience God.
2: Yeah, but I think that there's some great writings out there that can help us do that, right? Martin Buber, I'm a huge fan of Balthazar, um, Hans von Balthazar, um, who was Catholic and did talk about um, different types of um, ways that grace is mediated. I I think if anything, the evangelical church has stripped so many of those out that the only way grace is mediated is their pastor which is why there's so many, although theologically they would say, no, I, you know, the priesthood of all believers yeah. and that conviction stands in great contrast. That's why the praxis is so weird. Um, because with, you know, without those structures and, uh, and teaching around those structures, they end up default in, in the pastor. And, and that, you know, that kills pastors, too, because that that's a huge weight to put on a pastor's shoulders from the congregation and, and why they're working 100 million hours with people who are thankless, you know, and maybe get a an attaboy or girl. Well, no, probably not an girl, but anyway, an attaboy, most, you know, it, it's eating them alive, too, because they're not created to be the mediator of grace. And most of them don't want to. Uh, most, most, most are not. You know, like Mark Driscoll, most are amazing, humble, lost humans who are just trying to follow, be faithful to the call of God on their life. Um, so they're set up for failure by that system as well. So my heart for pastors is huge because it's, I think, I think it's a job description crafted in hell, literally. And I just want to help them find, find the space, find the space of grace.
1: Wow. Well, I do want to do this just before we take a break. I just wanted to affirm, like, I can only imagine as a female working in spaces that are often male dominated, how challenging that can be. So just uh, blessings and peace and then keep up the good work, I guess I'd say. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> let's, take a, uh, let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Jesse Crookshank getting that name right here finally um the closing questions you can take as seriously or not as you'd like to but if you're pope for a day what does that day look like what do you want to do
2: oh my gosh that sounds terrifying um (laughs) so i think if i were pope for the day i think i would just give it over to jesus which sounds like a super cop-out answer and it probably is um because i mean i don't know i would eat italian food all day i love italian food maybe i would Build myself a house in Italy or, or get a house in Italy. Yeah. So I love that country. Um, but I I just love the diversity of humanity and the diversity of the body of Christ. So um, could, I, could I make all of it okay and say it's all legit? I might do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Pope can do that. I mean, you, <laughs> you're kind of defining what Pope can do. So Pope can do that. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life?
2: Yeah. I I mentioned um, Hans Urs von uh, Balthasar and I'd love to meet him. And then the gal who actually inspired him, who he wrote stuff for, um, and her name is Adriana von Speyer. And I would love to meet her because she was actually like a a Catholic mystic. Hmm. And um, she just had some experiences with God that I would love to just hear those stories. So the two of can I get, I get two, I've still Pope for the day. I can bring back two. <laughs> yeah.
1: You have to email me the spelling of those names. Cause I've, uh, sure. <laughs> what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Mm,
2: I think, I think that they'll remember it as a dark period, um, that we had lost the plot for 30 to 50 years. Um, But that we're getting it back, like I do, I do really believe we're entering a time of renewal where we'll correct that, you know, mind of, mind of man being the highest good kind of thing. Hmm. Um, I think, yeah, I think there's some good correction coming, but the last chunk has been really dark and we've really missed God. We've really missed the heart of God, Um, but he's faithful. And so, yeah, that's what I think that they'll see in these, uh, this time period.
1: Awesome. Uh, what are your hopes for the future of Christianity?
2: Oh, man, that we partner well with that and as many people join that as possible. I mean, to me, the worst is that the worst thing that could happen would be that we try to keep alive something Jesus is letting die. Right. So to me, that makes a Frankenstein. And the and the monster kills things. I mean, it doesn't mean to, but it just does. So the the actual monster is... Dr. Frankenstein, the one who played God and tried to keep things alive, that were dying and dead. And I would, I would hope that we aren't that.
1: So keeping alive what Jesus is trying to let die. Yeah. So good. Writing that down.
2: Horror stories. People have lived these horror stories. I'm sure someone right now is thinking of it.
1: You read that book, right? Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Such an interesting, yeah, such an interesting story. Um. All right. Well, where can people find out more about you?
2: Yeah. So I, I'm available in a few different places. Um, I have a website with my nerdy stuff called your brain by Jess. Also my Twitter handle and my Instagram, although I'm not very good at Instagram. Um, I have my own ministry on disciple making called whoology, uh, Co. and you can go there. And then for church consulting, denominational consulting and coaching, um, I work with the Future Church with Will Mancini and Dave Rhodes and Kelly Kamisher and so you can reach me through them. So, well, different, different pathways.
1: Yeah, this has been a great conversation. Appreciate your time so much, and uh,
0: may God's peace be with you.
2: Uh, and also with you.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Roe-McLevitt. Thanks, and go in peace.